Thank you for listening to the Paradigm Podcast. Paradigm is a young adult ministry that exists to see lives changed by Jesus. For more information about Paradigm, go to ParadigmKC.com. We hope this message is inspiring and life-changing. Thanks for listening. Copy God's Word, once you find the book of Galatians chapter 5, we are continuing our verse-by-verse walk through this wonderful little but power-packed book called Galatians. And I don't know if you've come in here or anything like me, but uh, when it comes to chips and salsa, man, you boys are salsaholic. Any salsaholics in the house? Yes. Woo! Woo! I can eat my weight in chips and salsa. So uh, it grieved me the other day, so I was talking with my buddy, and he was telling me about this new place that he went to, and he was like, yeah, man, they, they had chips and salsa. I was like, well, where's it at? You had me at chips and salsa. And, uh, and he's like, well, well hey, hang on a second, because we were there eating this chips and salsa, and, um, and I start chewing up, you know, my chips and salsa. You know, don't want to mess up with my chips and salsa. I start chewing up my chips and salsa, and, and, I, and I, got on, I got on something that was, that was foreign in the salsa. It was foreign. And, uh, and I kept chewing on it, and it wasn't crunching. It just was, it was chewy. But it was kind of stiff. And, uh, and he said, I, I kind of had this, like I, I've committed to chew this thing up, but it's foreign, so I'm, I'm going to need to go ahead and investigate this. And this is what he found. That man had a toenail in his salsa. <clears throat> oh, pull it down. All right, thank you. <clears throat> Now, a little toenail in the salsa ruins the whole thing. Can I get an amen? amen? Yeah, right. Now, they try to, like, you know, demand that something gets paid for. Nothing gets paid for. You know, I was a little shy. I'm not going to mention the name of the restaurant so y'all don't, you know, hate on them and give them a low-star review. But that just happened, man, and that just, that just messes with us. And the reason why I share that with you tonight is because we're talking about the grace of God tonight. Now, as much as I love salsa, I love the grace of God even more. I'm a graceaholic. I love God's grace. When I think about all the characteristics of God, that he's, you know, he's just, he's holy, he's merciful. When I kind of land on grace, I'm like, whoo, thank God for his grace. And we sing songs about the grace of God. I mean, one of the most famous songs ever sung in the church is a song called Amazing Grace. That the grace of God is incredible. And, uh, but here's what I know to be true, that sometimes we can, we can mess with God's grace a little bit, and when you get a little bit of toenail, if you will, in God's grace, it can run the whole salsa of salvation. That when we mess with God's grace, it can mess up with the whole concept that we're so fired up about. Now, there's two primary ways that we mess with God's grace that we see historically. You and I, maybe we've had this temptation or this tendency to mess with God's grace personally, but you also see this throughout the history of Christianity. And one way is we like to add to God's grace. Uh, This is um, historically called legalism. That's where you kind of focus on all the rules, and uh, and that's kind of what you make it all about, you know. And you're like, yeah, 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 God's got grace, but that's for later. I've got to get to work, and I've got to get out there and grind and make it happen. And, uh, and it's all about the rules and doing everything just the right way, and you're adding things to the grace of God. Another way that we mess up the grace of God is that we, we take from it. This is historically called licentiousness. If that's a new word to you, that just literally means that you cast off all of the rules. And, and you're kind of like so focused on the grace that God's like, hey, I need you to do some things. And you're like, yeah, 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 but you've given me grace. And so all of those things don't matter. And tonight we're going to address these two toenails, if you will. 
Now, now I've known about these issues for a, a long time in my life. Like, I've known that there's kind of like the pure grace of God, and then I know that these, there are these two ditches, if you will, where we'll fall into legalism over here, or we'll fall into licentiousness over here. And even though I know about these things, I still have this tendency to, to be guilty and fall into these things. Like, there's been seasons of my life where I've made, um, I've made my faith in Christ really all about my performance. I talked a little bit about that last week. And so there's been times in my life where I've kind of walked with a little bit of a spiritual swagger, if you will, and I've been so focused on doing all of the right things, so much so that it's been at the expense of my relationship with God. And, and then I would even low-key like judge other people because they weren't following God like I was, so to speak. And I found myself in those seasons like, oh my goodness, I am guilty of being a legalist right now. And I was so focused on all the rules, and I didn't really care about my relationship with God, and that just leads to a cold relationship. If you come in here tonight and you're focused on doing all of the right things right so that hopefully God will say, all right, he's all right, then your relationship with God, it's going to be kind of cold if you make it all about all the rules. But there's been other times in my life where, I, where I've been like, man, God, you love me, and I know I got some issues, but I, you know, nobody's perfect, God, and you understand. Listen, God doesn't understand our sin. He's holy. He's without sin. He's perfect. And so there's been times in my life where I've kind of, you know, turned a blind eye to the perfection of God, and I've just said, well, you kind of understand about my, about my sin, and you're good at grace. I'm good at sinning, so like, let's just kind of, let's do away with all of the rules. And here's what I've learned, that that's messed with my relationship with God as well. Any relationship without any rules leads to chaos. And so I've fallen into these two areas, and you've probably fallen into these two areas as well. And that when we mess with the grace of God, it, it oftentimes just gets spiraled into something that it never was meant to be and it ultimately will affect our relationship with God. Like I've misused the grace of God. I've abused the grace of God. In the Bible, so many things are written to help remind us of our need for God's grace. And so many things are written to call us to walk in a manner worthy of receiving that grace. And tonight, I want to call you to examine your life and see whether or not you are enjoying the grace of God, to see whether or not you are focused on the pure grace that God has to offer you so that you can know that you're in right standing with God before you leave tonight. Tonight, we're going to address some toenails, if you will. If you're taking notes, I've titled this message, Resolved for Grace, Resolved for Grace, and I want to give you three resolutions in regard to God's grace. Now, before we get into God's word, there's a, a little bit of a disclaimer to tonight's message. We're going to be throwing out the word circumcision quite a bit tonight. Bless you. And so um, <clears throat> circumcision is this uh, word that's in the Bible, um, but it's not really like real common, like, like, you know, we're not talking about this a lot in the late night tonight, you know. Like, like, we're not hanging out there. I'm not going to give an example. It'll get weird. Anyway, so we're not out there talking about this, okay? But the biblical authors and in the culture that the Bible has written, circumcision, it's a really big deal. And, uh, and it's much more than just a personal choice. Um, it, it's really spiritual in nature. That circumcision, when, when they start talking about this in the Bible, it's strongly connected to whether or not you have right standing before God. Like there was an era in, in parts of the Bible where they believed that if you were not circumcised, then you were unclean or you could not be made right with God. They would put it like on the same level of if you don't sacrifice a certain animal or if you don't wash your hands a certain way or wear a certain dress, that, that circumcision in the Bible, what we're talking about tonight, it kind of encompasses all of the ceremonial laws that you had to do in order to make one right before God. 
And so we're going to be throwing out that word a lot, and I need you to kind of get some cultural understanding so that it's not as awkward, you know, as, as it, it's going to come across. Anyway, so Paul, he wrote this, and Paul, like, he grew up, he would even tell you, I was circumcised on the eighth day, I was from this place. Like, he did all of the rules right, but when he met Jesus and he was impacted by the grace of God, it caused him to begin to question what makes one right with God, and where he landed is in what we call the gospel or the main message of the Bible. And Paul would say this very clearly, what makes someone right with God is not their ceremonial doings. It's not whether or not they've been circumcised. It's not if they've sacrificed this. It's not if they're from this place, if they've walked this way, whatever it is. What he would say, what makes someone right with God and what's the main message of the Bible is that Jesus Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father. That work and us putting our faith in Christ, that's what makes someone right with God. And Paul, he's writing this letter to this this group of churches in Galatia, and he's saying, hey, don't get it twisted. Let's continue to focus on the grace of God. And Paul, he's protecting the integrity of this message, and he is fired up in this section. Here's what it says in Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. He says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. I love this. He says, stand firm. Then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. I just love the language that the Bible gives to try to describe our relationship with God. In here, Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. In the original language, Paul would have wrote this in Koinonia Greek, and we kind of miss some of the emphasis in our translation in English, but Paul is literally like, he's so emphatic. He's like, freedom is the means by which you've been set free, and freedom is the end of you being set free. He's like, if I could give it, give it one word, what, what is the word, Paul? He's like, freedom, like William Wallace here, right? He's fired up about that. That if you've come in here and you feel in bondage to anything, what Paul would say is that Christ came so that you would have freedom. Isn't that incredible? That God doesn't want you in bondage. God doesn't want you enslaved. That Paul, he would write elsewhere that Jesus came to set us free from the plantation of sin. And he came and he declared a greater emancipation proclamation that any of us that were born, and that's all of us that were born slaves to sin, We could, by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, be freed from the penalty of sin, be freed from the power of sin. And one day when we meet our maker, if you put your faith in Christ, you'll be free from the presence of sin. No more more bad news. No more having to deal with acts of hatred. No more wars. No more cancer. No more pain, free, in a place called heaven because we put our faith in Christ. And Paul, that's what he's saying here. He's saying, like, it's for freedom that you've been set free. So you stand firm and you don't go back to those religious rituals that keep you all oppressed and in bondage, thinking you, gotta, you have to earn your way into heaven. And he goes on, he says this in verse 2. He says, mark my words. I love this, man. Paul, Paul's not some passive, you know, like, if you could write this down, and I think maybe you should think about this. Paul's like, no, you, you mark my words, you know. He's like picking a fight. It fires me up. Anyway, he says, I, Paul, I tell you that if, if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. What he's saying is he's saying if you bank your right standing before God upon your doings, then why did Jesus have to die? If you could be good enough to get to heaven, then why did Jesus have to die? That'd be like the biggest oops of all time. And the Bible teaches over and over and over, you and I, we cannot be good enough to get to God. 
There's nothing that we can do. We were born dead spiritually. And we needed Jesus to come on an operation, mission of liberation of people. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says this in verse 3. He says, again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he's obligated to obey the whole law. He says, you who are trying to be justified or made right before God by the law, you've been alienated from Christ. And he says, you've fallen away from grace. What he's saying is that you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And he's saying that they've fallen away from grace when they tried to earn grace. If you try to earn grace, it ceases to be grace. And then Paul, he gives this amazing verse in verse 5. He says this, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. He's saying that it's the Spirit of God that will bring right standing to us. He's saying we're eagerly awaiting this. He's like, this is, this is our hope. Now, in the Bible, it's going to use this word hope, and oftentimes we'll think of, of how we use the word hope. Like, like today, we were looking outside, and, and it's raining outside, y'all. And we were hoping to have like this luau, and we were hoping to do the limbo and all the, all the stuff tonight. And so like earlier, we were like, man, I hope it doesn't rain. You know, it's kind of like, I, you know, I, I, I wistful thinking, but, but it's, it's raining. We're going to turn up in the lobby space. It's all good. And so anyway, like, this is kind of how we'll use this word. I hope the Mavericks win tonight. You know, that kind of thing, right? And so we'll use that word, not really sure, and, and sometimes kind of unsure, and, and that's just how we use that word. So when we read the Bible, oftentimes we think that that's, that's kind of how, what it means to hope in God. Just kind of like, well, you know, I hope we go to heaven someday. I hope Jesus is the way. I just, I hope, I, you know, but I really don't know. But when the biblical authors use the word hope, it literally means that you have certainty, that you have assurance. It would be, me, it would be like me saying, I hope it doesn't rain inside the building tonight. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. And many people, they'll question whether or not there's legitimacy in the hope that is offered in Christianity. And the reason why Paul could have this certainty and this assurance is because he lived with people that went to the empty tomb that Jesus was buried in three days before he was killed, like he was murdered, he was crucified. And these guys show up and the stone has been rolled away and there is no body, there's never been a body, no one has ever recovered a dead body of Jesus because he ascended, or excuse me, he rose from the grave and then he revealed himself to over 500 people. Paul says, go, go talk to Tim and go talk to John and go talk to, to Sarah and them, like they saw the brother, like go ask them. They're not even dead yet. And it turned the world upside down. And 40 days later, Jesus, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And the reason why we have a certain hope is because the tomb is empty, y'all. And that is a historical fact. And you need to go hang your hat in the certainty of your faith based upon that evidence. We do not put our hope in what other people believed. The Bible is not a, it's not a manual to believe well. The Bible is a book of, of miraculous things that are recorded, and people just like you and me are like, man, I can't explain all that happened, but I can't deny it, so I'm going to write this thing down. And our faith is not in what men and women believed. Our faith is built upon what they saw. They saw their friend crucified on the cross, and then three days later, they saw him alive. And the tomb was empty, and the only way that they could explain it was by believing what Jesus claimed about himself, that he is the Son of God, and that he would be crucified, and that three days later he would rise from the grave. 
And Paul, when he says that we have this, this eager anticipation for the righteousness that's going to come, that, and that's our hope, like that's what he's saying. I, I, Jesus died and he rose from the grave. That is the certainty of our hope. And then he goes on in verse 6 and he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision have any value. He says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now, Paul, for him to write this, he would have been writing this and been like, wow, that is, that is profound, that is beautiful, and this is going to tick some people off, all right? Like to the audience that was hearing this and those that thought you had to be circumcised in order to be right before God, this would have been highly offensive. And what Paul's saying is, he's saying it doesn't matter if you are a religious person here tonight. It doesn't matter if you're an irreligious person here tonight. Those things cannot make you right or wrong before God. They have no value. This word value that he uses here, it literally means power or profit. What he's saying is that moral exertion or moral failures, they don't count towards your account with God. The only thing that can make you right before God is the love that God has bestowed upon you and his grace. You and I, we cannot earn salvation. And Paul's going to great lengths to drive this nail into the board. Resolve number one tonight, if you're taking notes, you could write this down. I will enjoy the grace of God. Just make that commitment together. I will enjoy the grace of God. Do you enjoy God's grace? I think in order for us to enjoy the grace of God, we really got to think about the grace of God. What Paul says here is like, man, you've been set free. You've got to stand firm in the freedom of Christ. You've got to eagerly await the hope of Christ, and you've got to live out your faith for Christ. Like Paul, he's working hard in this. Notice some of his language. He's like, hey, you got to listen to this. I'm going to say it again. Only Christ can save you. you. You cannot save you. Only Christ. It's his grace. He says here that people, they've fallen away from grace when they try to add to God's grace. He's saying it's grace. If you, if you want a quick definition of what grace is, because, again, like we'll, we'll say grace before a meal. We'll sing amazing grace, but oftentimes we don't really know what grace is. Grace, you could think of it this way, the, the word G-R-A-C-E. Here's a good definition of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. You just write that down. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That when you put your faith in Christ as your only hope for salvation, what we've looked at in Galatians, you become an heir to the, to the kingdom of God. You get all of God's riches. You get way more than forgiveness. You get his riches. And salvation is free for you and me. But it cost Jesus his life. Grace. Have you been impacted by the grace of God? A grace that changes our hearts when our hearts have been gripped by his grace. And how do you know your heart's been changed by that grace? Well, here's what you do. You love people. I don't know if you ever met like a Christian that's like, man, God's changed my life. He loves me so much. But they're just so unkind. Don't look at them right now, you know. If, if you're sitting next to him, just blink at me like, this guy is rude, but he was raising a hand earlier. I'm so confused, you know. The way that you know that your heart has been gripped by the grace of God is that you love people. Paul, he says it here in verse 6. He says the only thing that counts, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Do you love people? And I think most everybody here would say, yeah, I, I love people. I'm a, I'm a nice guy. I love people. Well, then I would say, by what standard do you love them? And many of you, you would kind of just fall back on some sort of standard that you've invented. And I love them to the best of my ability. 
And that's what naturally what we do. We love people to the best of our ability based upon our own standard. But what Paul's saying is he's calling us to love by God's standard. He's saying that this is the thing that matters. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And Paul is calling us to love by God's standards. But listen, you can't love the way God loves without God in your life. You cannot give that which you don't have. And if you have not been impacted by the grace and the love and the mercy of God, then you cannot love the way that you were designed to love. It's only until you understand the love of God that you can truly love someone the way that God calls you to love them. Like you cannot truly love someone until you've understood how deeply you are loved by God. Does your faith in God, does it, does it express itself in love towards others? And again, only until you enjoy the grace of God will you be free to live the life that God wants you to live. So tonight, let's make a resolve to enjoy God's grace and allow it to play itself out in the way that we love one another, the way that God calls us to love one another, sacrificially, generously, with humility, and so many other characteristics that you can find in God's word. Well, Paul, he goes on, and here's what he says in verse 7. He kind of hits like a little bit of a rabbit trail, but this is where he gets a little fired up. He says, you were running a good race. He's like, you were doing so good. He says, who cut in on you and to keep you from obeying the truth? That for Paul, the race that he was encouraging them to run was a race towards obeying the truth of God. And that's the race that he's talking about. He says, that kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. He's like, that, that teaching that y'all subscribe to, that's not from God. That, that, that has nothing to do with God. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. That's Paul's way of saying a little toenail is going to mess up the whole salsa, all right? And he's saying, he goes on, and like, I want you to hear Paul's urgency. I also, also want you to hear Paul's anger here. Here's what he says in verse 10. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. He says, the one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, notice this, will have to pay the penalty. He says, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Why am I still being persecuted? He says, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. That's his way of saying that, that, it, that if, if you can add something to it, if I was preaching circumcision, then, then the, the cross wouldn't be offensive. The cross is offensive because it tells you that you cannot save yourself. He goes on in verse 12. He says, as for those agitators, these were the Judaizers, the ones that were saying, yeah, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to have the ceremonial law thing. You also need to be circumcised, the agitators were telling them. He says, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. I don't know if you ever read the Bible and, and have like this idea that, that, that godly men, godly women are just kind of soft. And, uh, and they're just kind of, you know, sweet, soft-spoken. That, you know, some, some guys are that way. Some ladies are that way. Praise God if you're that way. But sometimes I've come into places like this, and I, and I feel like I have to cast off some of that gregariousness and some of that, well, yeah, I'm loud and I'm competitive, and, and is there a place for me in the body of Christ? And I, and I remember just growing up thinking, like, you know, guys like me, you know, they, they don't really belong in church. But the more I read the Bible, the more I understand, yes, they belong in church, that we need men and women of God that are going to take a stand for what matters most. And they're going to call out, Paul would say to another group of people, they were teaching basically the same thing. He calls them a bunch of dogs. He says, beware of the dogs. And he says, just kind of, they should mutilate themselves. And then here he says, they need to emasculate themselves. 
if they're teaching that. Let them just go. Let them go big. Let them go all out. And he's picking a fight with those that have picked a fight with what is most precious. And it's okay, man and woman of God, to take a stand. Paul, what he's so fired up about is that they were adding things to the grace of God. Uh, They were being legalists. They were saying that you've got to do these things in order to be right with God. And so the second resolution I want to give to you tonight, resolve number two, is that I will not add to the grace of God. I will not add to the grace of God. Can we resolve tonight that infinite grace from Almighty God is sufficient for our salvation? And that we don't need to add a bunch of things to infinite, all right? Who are we to add toenails to the salsa? You know what I'm saying? Shame on you if that was you, all right? And I'm going to resolve I will not add to the grace of God. Paul, he's a little unhinged right here. He's, he's a little unfiltered. You know, you, you get the drift of what he's saying. He's like, y'all are freely running, obeying the truth. And then a little yeast got in the dough. Yeast in the Bible, it's a euphemism for sin. What he's saying is that there was a, a little bit of false teaching, the truth, but with a little bit of addition. And it caused people to be off. That any time we add to the grace of God, it ceases to be good and it leads to legalism. And legalism always leads people to be locked up spiritually and to not be able to run freely. Uh, when I was in high school, um, we were kind of on the front end of like speed and agility training. And so that was kind of becoming a thing when I was in high school. And so uh, we didn't quite have the budget money raised in the booster club to get like the official sleds and the bungees and all that stuff. That came later. And so I remember going out there and I'm like 15 years old and it's springtime and we're trying to get faster. And I see a bunch of bus tires. And my coach has concocted like these big old bus tires with an eye bolt and a rope and like a seat belt where you had to get, like get in the seat belt over your shoulder. And then we're out there just running tethered to these bus tires, you know, and dragging them and it's kicking up dirt and all this stuff. And, and so, like, imagine the, the scene, right? You have all of these, like, 15-year-old guys out there trying to get faster. So I was trying to get my 40 down from a 6 flat to a 5.7, and uh, it never happened. And so I was trying to get it down, you know. And anyway, and, and, and that's the picture, I think, of a lot of people that are trapped in legalism. You know, they're out there trying to run this race and like, I'm trying to please God. And I'm just, and I'm like, cut the rope, man. Take the weird seatbelt thing off and cut the rope. That's not helping you run the race. And Paul's saying that we have this tendency to pick up additional things, thinking that that's going to help us. And many of you spiritually are lugging around a giant bus tire, trying to run and please God, and all it's doing is slowing you down. And your relationship with God is all about the rules, and it's not about the freedom that Christ died to give you. Paul, he says in verse 7, who cut in on you? What what happened? Who convinced you to pick up the tire? Like, what what about God's grace isn't enough? See, what had happened is that they had subscribed to what I call code Christianity. I don't know if you've ever heard of code Christianity. Code Christianity is like a Christianity, but then you got to know the code. And and the code is like, well, well, there's certain things that everybody should know that that's what makes, that's what Christians do, you know? Like maybe you grew up in a fundy church. And uh, and so like you had you had to learn the code when you were at church. You know, like if you showed up wearing something like what you're wearing tonight and everybody else was in dresses and in suits, they would look at you and you'd be like, oh, apparently they don't know the code. <laughs> Godly people wear their best, you know? And they would look at you and judge you. And heaven forbid you got a tattoo. They'd be like, they don't know the code. You don't get tattoos if you're a Christian. You know, and they were like, you got to sing a certain music because that's what it means to be a Christian. You got to have a certain experience because that's what it means to be a Christian. You know, code Christianity. It's adding things to what it means to be a Christian. And you, maybe you grew up in a church where you were judged because you didn't abide by the code. You just read the Bible and you just did what the Bible said to do. And, and what happens is that 
We'll come into our young adult season and we'll be like, man, man, that, that, was, that was weird. You know, I, I don't like that code. And so oftentimes we'll swing the pendulum over here and we'll change the code. And so like maybe some of you have come in here tonight and like you've been following Jesus for a little bit and we will quickly drift into this sort of thing called code Christianity. And so we'll, we'll make Christianity about like, hey, have you, ran, you, you read Comer's new book? The, the, live, the Live Not Lies book? Have you read that one? Because Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and like you'll just start dropping all of these like random theological books that everyone's reading, you know, the code. And then like, you know, the church, I can't get tattoos, but now I've swung this other way and like I've, I've, I've got tattoos, that's what makes me a Christian. Hebrew tattoos, if that, you know, that's what makes me a Christian. And you know, the code, and like I know when to raise my hand, I know when to go like this, I know when to hold the TV, I got the code, you know? Like I know all the gestures, I know the language, and, and like we'll begin to low-key judge people that don't know the code, you know? Like they, they don't know yet, they, they haven't had the experience, you know? They don't listen to Groeschel and Keller and Furtick and all the, you know, they don't, they don't know who Michael Todd is. They don't know the code, right? They just don't know yet, but they're going to get there. You know, they're going to they're gonna learn some things and, you know, the code Christianity. And we have this tendency to add things to Christianity and to make this thing not what it was intended to be. And we can turn this thing into a place of legalism. See, code Christianity, what it does is it, is it makes you out to be Batman and Jesus out to be Alfred. And listen, you are not the hero of your story. And Jesus isn't some assistant that's trying to set you up to win the day, all right? That code Christianity, it leads to legalism, and we need to cut that legalism rope away from us. And Paul, what he's saying is that, that, that God, he's going to judge those that add things to the grace of God. What it says is, is that if you want to add things to the grace of God, why don't you go big, is what Paul said, and why don't you emasculate yourself altogether? That's pretty strong language. And now, if you're anything like me, you're like, you read the Bible sometimes, you're like, whoo, I'm glad that's not me, you know? And uh, I'm glad this message was for somebody else. And I don't, you know, and, and oftentimes I can be unaware that I got issues. And so let me give you five things that maybe could help you diagnose whether or not you know that you're a legalist. Because maybe you come in here and you're like, I'm, I'm not a legalist. I don't struggle with that. Well, let me give you five questions to ask yourself to see if you struggle with being a legalist. First one is this. Um, do you try to control God by being good? You know, th- this sifts itself out where you're like, you know, God, like I've been coming to church like a month. And so, like, if you could just put in a good word with her. Like, I know I've been seeing her for like two months, um, and she don't know that yet. <laughs> but so when I make that public, I just need you to know, um, you know, God, if you could hook me up, right? And then we'll get another wedding invite, and we'll be mad at God because you've been being good, and you're just trying to get a date. And so low-key, you're just being good because you're trying to control God. Or, or this one, do you call conviction sin? Because she's got spandex on, she can't go to heaven? Because he had a beer, he can't become a Christian? Be, be, because they... They said a certain thing, whatever it is. Like oftentimes we will disqualify people from the kingdom of God because of our personal conviction. Listen, we should have convictions. We should have convictions about what we wear. We should have convictions about what we say. We should have convictions about what we drink. We should have convictions about how much we sleep or how little we sleep. We should have convictions. But anytime we take extra biblical convictions and we start calling them sin, we're guilty of legalism. What about this question? Are you, are you not sure that you're saved? Now, some people, you, you need to have some uncertainty because you have no evidence. You have no experience. 
But others of you, you struggle with being a legalist and like you've prayed and asked Jesus to save you like 28 times, you know? But you're like, I don't know, like I don't know this weekend and I don't know if he heard me. Does God, can God hear me every time? You know, I'm just unsure. Have I done enough? I don't know. Have I done enough? I don't know. I'm insecure in this relationship. And you're anxious about where you stand with God and you're making your salvation based upon your sincerity and not God's work. That it's by faith in Christ's work, not your sincerity, that you're saved. And the legalists, oftentimes, they'll struggle with insecurity as to whether or not they're even right before God. Here's another question. How do you know if you're a legalist? Uh, do you think others need God more than you? You're like, I'm so glad that she's here. Like, oh, I've been praying for her so much. And like, I, I, like I'm good, but she really likes, you know, lots of God, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to vibe you over there, whatever you think, you know. And oftentimes we can think that, you know, it was like, it was cool that God saved us, but he's really going to have to work for that one over there. Woo! And typically that's a sign that you don't understand the depth of your depravity and you don't understand the degree of your need for Christ. And you're elevating your goodness over other people, thinking that other people need Jesus more than you. And you're a legalist. Or last question, how do you know if you're a legalist? Number five, do you have a hard time forgiving people? Do you have a hard time forgiving people? Look, God, I know that your grace has washed over me. I know that I've been bathed in your, in your love and that you've given me infinite forgiveness. But I can't forgive that person for cutting me off on 470 at 5 o'clock. You know, Kansas drivers, Missouri drivers, whatever the thing is, right? And you're like, you just, and you're just, oh, it, but, but. Road things are funny, but, but what about when you've really been hurt? And God comes to you, and he says, I've given you grace. And you're like, but God, I don't know if you've given me that much grace. He's like, I'm infinite in grace. And God will give you grace sufficient for the occasion. And if you're having a hard time forgiving, typically that shows that you don't understand the depth by which you've been forgiven. And if you have a hard time forgiving, that may be because you're a legalist. And if you're a legalist, you're adding to the grace of God. And listen, if you're adding to the grace of God, then you're not running the race that he has for you. And all the extra weight and all the tires, they're slowing you down. And listen, Jesus died to set you free from futile attempts to be right with him so that you could run the race that God has for you by his grace. Paul, he's saying, don't, don't lose gospel freedom. Don't lose that. But he also goes on to say, don't abuse gospel freedom either. He says this in verse 13. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, you were called to be free. He's just kind of reminding them of what he's already said. He says, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be devoured by each other. Resolve number three, and finally, that we're going to make tonight, is that I'm going to resolve that I will not abuse the grace of God. I'm going to resolve I will not abuse the grace of God. Could we resolve tonight to enjoy the grace of God? Could we resolve tonight to not add to the grace of God? And could we resolve tonight to not abuse the grace of God? What Paul's saying here is he's saying, don't abuse God's grace by indulging in the flesh. Uh, this phrase, indulging in the flesh, that, that just is his, his way of saying, don't go out and sin and do things that are evil that you know that you shouldn't do. And many times we, we do this. 
We, we think that God's grace gives us a license to sin. Now, every one of us, we, we have some area that we're being tempted tonight to take advantage of God's grace. Like every one of us, we've got some sort of area where, where, where we're justifying why it's okay for us to do said thing. Y'all don't look at me like you're all pious out there, y'all. Like I know you got something here tonight, all right? Some of you already been on your phone tonight looking at something that you shouldn't be looking at, right? In church, right? In church, you're like, oh, I did like, you know? And you're trying to justify why like God's like, he loves me. It's okay. It's cool. It's not cool. That God has no concept of sin. That, that the word of God tells us that God, he dwells in unapproachable light. That he's perfect. That he's holy. And anytime we have this mentality that it's, you know, well, it's not that bad. It's just a, it's just a little thing. Anytime we have that mentality, we're cheapening the grace of God. And we think, well, you know, God, he, he's good at forgiveness, and, and I'm good at sin, so, you know, God, you do your forgiveness thing, you do your grace thing, I'm going to do my sin thing, and it's just, it'll all work out. Listen, Jesus didn't die on a cross, raised from the grave, so that you could get his grace and then abuse his grace by living however you want to live. That only until your heart has been gripped by the grace of God will you become to see the sin in your life the way that God sees it. We're called to confess our sin to God. Uh, this word confess, it's the Greek word homo legeo. It means to say the same thing about the sin that God says about it. And so often, man, we're, me included, we're, we're guilty of abusing the grace of God. But maybe, maybe you don't know like, if you're doing that or not. And again, let me, let me just kind of give you a diagnostic real quick. Five questions to ask yourself to, to see, am I abusing the grace of God? Here's question number one. Are you apathetic towards sin? Is there a sin that you have brought in here tonight that you're coddling with and that you're getting cozy with thinking that somehow God understands? Again, he does not understand. He dwells in unapproachable light. He is pure and he is righteous. And oftentimes we're just like, well, it's a little sin. It's just a little sin. Yeah, it's just a little toenail on the salsa. You want to take a chip, you know? It's not just a little sin. And when we, when we become apathetic towards our sin, we're abusing the grace of God. Question number two, do you focus on the love of God over the holiness of God? You know, again, I think sometimes I was at Jason's Deli the other day eating with a, a guy and, and they had this big salad bar, you know, and I'm just rolling through there and I'm like, I'm going to get the romaine lettuce, not the spinach. You know, I'm going to get the onions, not the beets. I'm going to get the cheese, you know, and I'm just kind of rolling through, picking and choosing what I want. And many times we approach God's character that way. And we want to subdivide out God's character. We're like, I want his grace, I want his love, I want his mercy, but I don't want his holiness, his justice, his wrath at all. But listen, you cannot subdivide God. And the most emphatic characteristic that God displays in the scripture of himself is not his love. It's not his grace. It's his holiness. Only of his holiness does he emphasize it three times, which in the biblical language, that means that he is of the utmost holy. And in our culture, we have, we, have, we have saturated and watered down the holiness and the expectation and the standards of God in the name of transparency and authenticity. And we, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to reclaim that God is a holy God and he calls us to live a holy life. And we abuse the grace of God when we're like, I'll take your love and you know, we'll holler at holiness later. 
you can't just focus on one aspect of God. God is infinite in all that he is. Question number three, how do you know that you're abusing the grace of God? Do you sin and say, oh, well, God, he'll forgive me. It's all good. I'll just pray a prayer of forgiveness like I prayed before, maybe shed a tear, and, and it'll all be good. How do you know if you're abusing the grace of God? Number four, do you find yourself in the same sin over and over and over, making the same tired promise, I'll do better, I'll do better, I'll do better. Many times people, they'll confess their sin to me, and I'll look at them, and I'll say the sincerity of your integrity of the commitment that you're making is not seen by the tears that you're shedding or the prayer that you're praying. The sincerity, or excuse me, the integrity of your sincerity will be seen by your activity moving forward. If you really mean that you are really broken over your sin, go live in repentance. If you find yourself in the same sin over and over and over and over, you may be abusing the grace of God. And number five, how do you know if you're abusing the grace of God? Does accountability feel like a threat? When somebody calls you out, do you dodge that person? See, accountability only feels like a threat when you're unwilling to admit your disobedience. And when God, you may not know every sin in the book, but you know a few of them. And when God reveals through his spirit that you need to turn from that sin because he's given you grace and you're better than that. He doesn't want you to go back into those pits of de despair and depression or whatever it is that ultimate death that it's going to lead to. And when you're aware of that and you, and you revolt against that, you're just trying to justify your disobedience. And that will not end well for you, I promise. Are you abusing the grace of God? See, anytime we minimize our sin, we also minimize the sacrifice of Christ. And I don't think any of us want to look at Jesus dying on a cross and just kind of shrug and go, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But functionally, the way that we behave in our life, we do that often. And if we deliberately continue to sin, what sacrifice for sin is left? But the Bible records only a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You ever think about why, why God doesn't want you to sin? You ever think about that? Like, why, why would God put all these rules out there? And why would he change my heart? And why would he give me grace and then ask me to continue to follow him and, like, not do certain things and do certain things? Like, why does, he, why does he want me to love people the way that he loves them? Why does he want me to share my faith? Why does he not want me to, to give into my sexual desires? Why does he not want me to, to get drunk? Why does he not want me to be an immodest person? What, like, why, what's up with that? Why does God, why is he so fired up about my behavior? Why do you think God doesn't want you to sin? Well, here, here's one reason he don't want you to sin, because it separates you from him. God loves you, and he wants to be with you, but he can't be with sin. And so when we are deliberately sinning, it causes a separation in our relationship with him. He, he doesn't want you to sin because it creates suffering in your life and in the world. You know that it was two young adults, one young adult, 18-year-old, that shot up Buffalo? You know that it was another young adult, 18-year-old, that shot up Uvalde? What, what led those guys to do that? What, 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 what kind of person would, would record on Twitch murdering people of a different color? What, what, kind of, what kind of villain would go to a school, an elementary school, and slaughter children? Someone that's given over to their sin would. Someone that's indulging their hatred would. And anytime we sin, Anytime we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. We may not do something crazy like I just mentioned, 
but there will be a little death that we experience. God doesn't want you to sin because it separates you from him. It causes suffering in you and in the world, and it's a spiritual suicide. That The devil never sends anybody to hell. Sin does. The devil just tempts you and convinces you to sin. It's your sin that sends you to hell. And so when God's saying, I've given you grace, don't go back to that. There's no life there. It's because he loves you more than you can even understand, more than I can even understand, that it's sin that breaks the heart of God and that breaks the world. And Paul, he goes on in verse 13, and, and he, he just begins to talk about like how, how we don't need to indulge, we don't need to use this grace of God and this freedom we have to sin, but rather to, to serve. He's like, you need to indulge in serving people. Uh, we did this thing this weekend called Unashamed. And like over 50 young adults, they sacrificed their weekend to go into the city and to tell people about Jesus and to serve with different organizations. It was amazing. And I'm so proud that we have a ministry of young adults that are going into the city to do certain things because I know that there's a lot of young adults that are taking their energy and their efforts and they're turning up on the weekend in all kinds of ways that are not honoring to God. And what Paul's saying is like, don't, don't use, he's like, don't use all of your energy and all of your effort and all your creativity to go plan your sinful weekend. He says, but rather allow the grace of God to redeem you. And then you use that same energy, that same effort to go and plan how you're going to serve other people in humility. And if we would get that, I mean, we would change the world, y'all. And at one point there were young adults that were so compelled by the grace of God. And they said, I'm going to go serve other people, not my own self. And they changed the known world at the time. And now it's our time to rise up and to do what Jesus has asked us to do. Paul, he says, let the grace of God motivate you towards the love of God. He's saying that when you really understand the price that has been paid for you, when Jesus really grabs a hold of your heart, then you'll want to follow him. There's a man named Abraham Lincoln. He was one of our presidents. When he was a younger man, you can see a picture of him right here. He went to a slave auction. There was a young African woman that was being auctioned at this slave auction. And he begins to bid on this woman. And he buys this woman. And this young slave girl, she comes out of the auction and she is assigned to the man that purchased her. And Lincoln, he's recorded to have looked at her and said, young lady, you are free. And she said, I'm, I'm, I'm free. You know, she had no concept of that at this time. She said, what do you mean? What do you mean I'm free? She, he said, you're free. You can, you can, you're free. You can go do whatever you want to do. She said, well, I'm, am I free to, to say whatever I want? He says, yes, young lady. You're free to say whatever you want. She said, well, well am, I, am I free to be whoever I want? He said, yes. You are free to be whoever you want. Tears begin to well up in her eyes. She said, well, am I free to go wherever I want? He says, yes. You're free to go wherever you want. By now, she's crying, and she says, well, sir, then I'll go with you. And that is a picture of the invitation that Christ is offering all of us tonight. Jesus didn't pay for us with his money to buy our, south, or buy our freedom. He paid for us with his life. And he's inviting us into this overwhelming unexplainable, unimaginable grace of God in this relationship with our maker so that we can walk in freedom and we can live in the liberty that he purchased with his own blood. Do you know that truth? 
we're about to sing a song here in just a second after I pray. It's a song that we've already sang tonight, and it just talks about the power that's in the, the name of Jesus. And it talks about how it, how it can break chains. And maybe some of you, you come in here tonight, and you're in the chains of legalism. And as you sing this song, I want you to begin to, to ask God, would you break the chains of, of the oppression that I've put on myself or that my faith of origin has put upon me, thinking that I have to earn my, 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 my right standing before you? God, would you break the chain of legalism in my life? Others of you, you need to ask God to break the chain of licentiousness. That you've come in here a natural rebel and you've cast off all the rules thinking, oh, who cares? I'm going to live. I'm going to do me. I'm going to live how I want. And you know deep down inside that your desire to live however you want and your own personal freedom has made you a slave. And you need the Spirit of God to break those chains in your life. And so when you sing that song and when you hear that song sang, that you would say, God, would you break the chains of my rebelliousness? And would you help me to walk in the power that you died and rose again so that I could know? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. God, I thank you just for this opportunity to be here tonight. Open up your word. God, I pray that you'd help us to, to, to just focus on the grace of God. I just thank you for how good you are. I thank you for the sacrifice that you've made. God, I thank you that you died on a cross, you rose from the grave, that if we, if we would put our faith and trust in you and what you did in history, we would have a hope that is certain. God, I pray for the person that's so caught up in performance and legalism and all the extra things that you would deliver them, you would give them a change of mind that would lead to a change of heart, that would lead to a change of life. And for the others that are here tonight and they're justifying why it's okay to look at the things they're looking at, why it's okay to touch themselves the way that they're touching themselves, why it's okay to have romantic relationships the way that they're having romantic relationships, why it's okay to, uh, to do the things in excess that they're doing in excess, whatever it is, why it's okay for them to be apathetic and not do the things you called them to do and how somehow they've made up some version of faith where that's all good in your eyes. God, I pray that you would reveal to them that you're holy and that they wouldn't abuse your grace any longer and that you would set people free tonight. You would break chains tonight. And we would follow you because you've set us free. In Christ's name I pray, amen.